The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Today, we are going to talk about a niche subject within the security clearance process, but one that is incredibly important if you have gone through that process, and that is the Department of Defense, Defense Office of Hearings and Appeals. And today we are joined by Aileen Zanakis-Kozlowski. She is an expert in this field. She is currently an associate counsel at Bigley Ranish LLP, where she represents clients worldwide in federal security clearance and suitability proceedings. But previously, she also served as assistant general counsel for the Washington Headquarters Services at the U.S. Department of Defense. So she knows the Defense Office of Hearings and Appeals and knows about this adjudications process that, again, for the average security clearance holder, just might not be aware So thank you so much, Aileen, for joining me on the program today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Lindy. I'm so happy to be here. So talk to me a little bit about Doha. Describe what their role is in the security clearance process. Doha is a, we like to call it a quasi-judicial agency. It functions as the appellate body. So if an applicant's written appeal is unsuccessful with the DOD CAF, The Doha attorneys and judges function kind of as that next level of review. Currently, administrative judges at Doha make final determinations and publish those opinions for DOD contractors. And for military and civilian employees, currently those Doha judges will examine the appeal, will sort of listen and function like the arbiter, and then make a recommendation to the PSAB. And it's the PSAB right now that issues the ultimate decision for military and civilian employees. If you have not checked out the Doha cases before, I love that they actually do publish those. I think it allows a lot of transparency to the process. You can actually kind of get a decent take to some extent by just reading through those cases. And, you know, about every week or so, we usually publish a recap of a recently released Doha case. Because I think if you're applying for a security clearance, they give pretty decent insight into kind of that process. Maybe can you speak to that? Because you mentioned that how they publish. Is it surprising maybe that they publish the results of those cases for contractors? Or maybe why is that beneficial to the process that they actually go through that? Well, to be honest with you, Lindy, I'm surprised that everybody doesn't do it. It's just such an unusual circumstance where sort of the the goal of the policy behind it is to examine everyone as a unique individual and not to make some sort of a bright line rule because that is just kind of an icky notion, right? That someone wouldn't be considered as a unique individual. But at the same time, we need some uniformity. We need some understanding of how these decisions are made and how the rules are being applied. There are so many decisions that hinge on, you know, whether there's been enough 
passage of time, for example. But what does that mean? You know, does that mean three weeks? Does that mean three years? Something in between? And what does it hinge on? You know, and I think that's why the Doha decisions are so useful. Not to say that they would be mandatory at every single agency, but they certainly are persuasive because this is the only place where we can really look consistently for the rationale behind why a decision was made for a unique set of facts, which kind of gives us a little bit of insight in terms of trying to extrapolate for someone else. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting too that there's also an investigation and an adjudicative process. I think for applicants, that's often confusing, that we have the security clearance background investigation process that we spend so much time kind of thinking about and writing about, thinking about what we include on the SF-86. But there is this adjudicative or decision-making process. And that's where Doha really comes in to say, was this decision based on the adjudicative guidelines or criteria or the merits? You see in the appeals, there's only certain circumstances where you can appeal a statement of reasons or a denial or revocation. So maybe talk through those two distinct processes and why that's important, even from a legal standpoint, that you have an investigation. But what's kind of being discussed at Doha is that adjudicative decision that was made. Kind of like we have checks and balances throughout our systems of government. This is very similar. The idea is to keep the investigations deliberately separate from the adjudications. For the same reason that you wouldn't want the police officer who saw you at one of uh, maybe not your finest moments to also be the prosecutor in your case six months later. You appreciate the value in having a different set of eyes, maybe a fresh perspective, and maybe even just coming at it with a different philosophy to have the adjudicators kept completely separate from the investigations. Yeah, and it's just interesting because I think people sometimes assume that their background investigator is the one making the decision. And so they come maybe to a background investigation, a personal subject interview, and they are trying to kind of argue their case for that person. But they are really just gathering information and they're going to transition it. So there is due process involved here. And a part of that is separating out those two pieces. Now talk about kind of appealing a denial. If you are a person and you're going through that process, you're you know appealing a denial or revocation, what should you expect? I think one of the most important things that people should understand is that these adjudications are designed to be predictive. They are not designed to punish you for past mistakes even though it can feel like that. And we can look to certain Doha decisions to articulate the law behind that. But really, they're, tr- they're trying to function without a crystal ball. They're trying to understand, first, what happened, and second, whether or not it's likely to happen again. We want to kind of give a beginning, a middle, and an end when we come at these problems. We want to explain sort of how the situation arose, what actually happened, make sure everything's factually correct, and then explain why this is unlikely to recur. What's different now? So I think that's one of the ways that policy really is favorable to an applicant. But make no mistake, this is almost like the opposite of criminal law. So anybody who has a TV knows that, you know, in criminal law, you're innocent until you're proven guilty. But but we really come at it from a different philosophy because a security clearance is a privilege. It's not a right. So the onus is on the applicant to show why this situation is forgivable. 
to show why this situation is unlikely to recur. And even just to talk about the whole person concept, which sort of just introduces the applicant in more of a three-dimensional way and kind of underscores his or her credibility and just gives a fuller picture, the government must consider that, but it doesn't need to go looking for those facts. It's The onus is on the applicant to share that information. I think that's, you know, the most fundamental kind of two sides of the same coin that people should understand in the appeals process. And then also just kind of understanding the mechanics of it, that you kind of get two bites at the apple here for the most part, that you're going to have an opportunity to respond in writing and that the DOD CAF will review that submission. And then if you need to go to another level of appeal, Doha will review that next level of appeal and you can sort of select going to a hearing in person or you can almost, it's almost like a hearing in writing. It's a decision on the written record and Doha calls it a form, a file of relevant material. So those are kind of the different bites at the apple that you get. Yeah, and it really is an interesting process. So at different stages of the appeals process or the response to a statement of reasons, you kind of have different options for what you can present in terms of your case. Can you maybe speak to that? Because I know I see a lot of those Doha appeals cases, and it seems like people are trying to provide information that's already been presented again. And I see those continually get dinged. So I mean, I'm clearly not using the legal language whatsoever. But maybe you can speak to that process. Like, what are they actually looking for in, you know, from a legal framework in an appeal? And maybe even as as an attorney, why are attorneys important to that process? Because they can kind of decipher that language of like, specifically what the appeal board is going to consider. Just from a practical standpoint, sending something in writing tends to have a different feel and sort of is received differently than when you get to go face to face and look somebody in the eye and allow them the opportunity to judge your sincerity, really, which a lot of this comes down to. So when you're responding and writing to the DOD CAF, you want to make sure that you're telling a compelling story, understanding that you're never going to meet this person face to face. The thing that comes to mind most specifically is kind of this dichotomy where applicants want to take ownership over the mistakes that they did make, but also want to clarify this is not as it seems. You know, maybe I didn't make the mistake that's being alleged, or maybe it really wasn't that bad. And I think that's really tough. I think it's hard to toe the line of getting that right and taking ownership, but also correcting the record. And so I think there is value in going face to face, even if you don't have a totally new set of facts, just so that your tone and your demeanor can be better interpreted by someone who's met you. That makes a lot of sense. And I think you see those cases, you know, when somebody has the difference between a decision on the written record versus the decision of somebody coming in, it really can make a difference and help improve somebody's chances of being able to successfully obtain a security clearance. Attorney advertisement, not a guarantee or warranty of results. I'm attorney Sean Bigley. The denial or revocation of your security clearance is a devastating blow, but effective legal representation can make a difference. Contact my team at Bigley Ranish LLP for a free case evaluation. Find us online at biglylaw.com. Federal security clearances are all we do. 
Welcome back to Security Clearance Insecurity. I am attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. And we are talking this segment about three-letter agency clearance expectations. And, you know, Lindy, I think this is a topic that gets a lot of traction. It is something that I think induces a lot of anxiety for people who are clearance holders at other agencies and considering making a move to the intelligence community and a lot of questions because, you know, the, the sort of fear of the unknown. Is there a particular you know line of question or concern that, that you see most often come up or is it sort of a mixed bag? Well, so you need to correct me if I'm wrong here, Sean. But for me, I always consider this as we, we honestly almost have two different security clearance processes. And my problem at clearance jobs, typically I'm writing to the 95% of people who are applying for a clearance with the Department of Defense. You know, that is a lot of the pool. If the, the population of people that have clearances, the vast majority of them are DOD or other agencies. The intelligence community is much smaller, but they probably contribute a significant percentage of the questions that we get about the clearance process and the issues with applying for a security clearance. When we're talking about huge delays in the clearance process, you know, those intelligence community clearance processing times are significant. When we're getting questions about the polygraph, which is always produces a lot of questions. Most of those people are within the intelligence community. So I sometimes wish I could bucket it into two different processes because while the adjudicative guidelines are the same, what people encounter in applying is vastly different. Would you agree or disagree? I would totally agree. Sometimes we get people who are, you know, indignant because they say, well, you know, I read, you know, something that you wrote and that's not how we do it at my agency. And I, I have to say the same thing. Well, look, you know, I'm, I'm writing for the 95% of people who are, you know, following one process or who are, you know, dealing with one consideration. And yes, there are exceptions, but you know, we can't always talk about every single exception. But when it comes to the IC, it, it, they definitely march to their own drummer. There's no question about that. And yes, they follow the same adjudicative guidelines in theory that the rest of the government follows. They follow the same process up to a point that the rest of the government follows. But there are some real distinctions. And one of the biggest ones that we encounter actually is the differences in what constitutes reportable foreign contacts. So this is something we've talked about before. Who is a reportable foreign contact? And, you know, we get questions all the time from people about, can I pose to you a hypothetical? And, you know, would this person be <laughs> a reportable foreign contact? Most of the time for that 95% of the rest of the government, people who are, you know, for example, just passive social media contacts, you, you know, accepted a friend request because they sat a few rows away from you in a college class years ago and you haven't talked to them ever since. Like those are not reportable foreign contacts. But in the intelligence community, particularly at the CIA, that's a totally different story. They want to know every single foreign contact that you have, whether you are on social media with them, whether you've talked to them in years, it doesn't matter. And so people are oftentimes like shocked by that. And I have to tell them, you know, look, these guidelines are applicable to, you know, the 95% of the security clearance holders who aren't going through this process in the IC. But if your agency gives you specific direction to the contrary, 
you got to follow that. And that's the other pain point with the intelligence community application process. I, I do feel like it's a bit of more of a black hole of information along the way. I wish that there was some streamlined process where applicants got information, but in my experience, there's not a good expectation for that. And you do kind of have to follow the guidelines that you're getting from the application process, follow what, you know, a security officer is telling you or, you know, hiring manager, whoever you're, you're reaching out to. But once you submit your application, oftentimes there is not a lot more. And other than waiting, is that your experience or? Yeah, and and a lot of a lot of waiting. I, I hate to say it, but the process at some of these agencies is really broken. It's such a divergent process depending on where in the IC you're going. So, you know, for example, the the NSA runs a fairly efficient and quick process. And most people who apply there get through it, I would say maybe six months, maybe a little bit more. It's pretty prompt. And even their their appeals process, they're real quick on the trigger. We get cases where people are denied or revoked a clearance at NSA and their first level appeal, they've got a decision on within like 60 days or, or you know, slightly thereafter. And then if they have to go to the second level appeal, which is the final appeal, it's scheduled within another 60 days from that. And then they get the decision like a week after they have their hearing. And, you know, you compare that to... For example, CIA or NRO, which are typically the two worst offenders as far as timeliness. And we get cases all the time where somebody's been in the hiring process for years and then they finally get a denial and they're going, okay, this is based off of an application I submitted four years ago. This is outdated. There's been a lot of new information that could be mitigating. We have to tell them the bad news that unfortunately, the agency isn't going to get around to hearing your appeal for like two, three, four years beyond <laughs> this point. So it's like, so it, it, it really can be, as you said, a black hole. And frankly, it discourages some very good candidates from applying or from continuing in the application process because they're thinking, you know, geez, I, I, there's a lot of other opportunities that are available to me. Why do I want to sit around and wait, you know, for four plus years to get through the hiring process? So I think that's a shame and it's unfortunate. But, you know, there are other agencies within the IC that do things a lot more promptly. So do your homework if you're thinking about going down that road and figure out, you know, is this something that I'm willing to wait for or is this something that, you know, I need an answer on within the next six months? Yeah, no. And I think that's, I mean, you just have the issue. They just, I, CIA in particular, they always talk about, I mean, the number of applicants they have per job is just high. And so they are dealing with a numbers game where they can afford to kind of have that attitude towards the process. And so because of that, you just end up with a lot of people who do end up waiting a long time. I know they're aware that it's an issue. I think it's something that, you know, you know, potentially could get solved. And like you said, it's good to hear the the stories of folks like NSA who are doing it really well. Um, I think that's, you know, encouraging for folks and probably probably because they have to. I mean, I know because, you know, cybersecurity talent is in such demand that they want to be able to compete. Having an efficient clearance process is pretty important. I mean, we get the question a lot, like, are the adjudicative guidelines the same? Yes, but it is harder to get a clearance within the IC. So maybe can you speak to that a little bit? Why is that actually a harder process? I think there's a couple of issues here. One is that you know, the IC clearance process tends to ferret out more issues than the traditional security clearance process. And that's not to say that these issues aren't present in the larger applicant pool. It's just that they're not found. 
you can kind of chalk that up to a, a few different possible explanations. But I would say the main one is the polygraph. And we talk a lot about the polygraph and how unscientific it is. It's essentially junk science, for lack of a better term. And that's according to our own U.S. Department of Justice and federal court system. But the intelligence community continues to use it as sort of the great arbiter of security worthiness. And they do that because it's a very effective fear tool. It gets people to divulge information that they wouldn't otherwise normally divulge. And because of that, there are more issues that are coming to the attention of the security officials within the IC than would be anywhere else. So that's that's one big issue. The other thing that we encounter actually is differing interpretations, even within the adjudicative guidelines themselves. And a great example of this is actually an article that I just happened to see on Clearance Jobs written by one of our colleagues recently talking about how illegal downloads is not uh, typically a reason for security clearance denial. That's absolutely true for most of the cleared population because it really never comes up in the security clearance process. But we actually have seen this come up repeatedly within the intelligence community where it has become an issue and they have interpreted the question on the SF-86 asking about computer-related issues the exact opposite of the way that other agencies and other folks have interpreted it. They have said, no, it absolutely does include illegal downloading. And so NSA in particular, I think because they attract people with computer skills who are maybe more inclined to engage in this type of behavior, we see this issue regularly. And we've had to sort of develop a strategy on how do we mitigate this type of concern. And there's a number of things that we kind of do and, and work with our clients to do to address it. That's, you know, probably one of the most prominent examples that I can think of, of, you know, just even differing interpretations of the guidelines themselves and, and the questions. That is interesting that when we're talking about issues like illegal downloads, it's not it's not an issue unless you are applying for the IC or certain agencies and you will see it come up in ways that you didn't expect or anticipate. There's a lot of ambiguity in some of these SF-86 questions, and it lends itself to, you know, differing interpretations, even of the questions themselves. And so folks who are applying, you know, in the IC need to be cognizant of that and also need to, you know, think about if they have a clearance already, am I potentially going to be in a situation where I have to divulge something to the government that they don't know about and ask yourself that question, you know, is there something in my background that the government doesn't already know about because they maybe they haven't asked. It's not a question on the SF-86, but there's something I'm hiding. There's something that I'm worried about that could come up during the IC hiring process. Go talk to somebody knowledgeable before you, you know, pull the trigger on that application. Well, yeah, I mean, because that's the other question we get like, hey, if I'm denied a security clearance within the IC, will it affect my other clearances? And the answer is yes. For that reason, even though the criteria are applied differently, it is the same adjudicative guideline. So if you are not eligible for a clearance, you are not eligible for a clearance. I will say that we have seen cases where so one agency has denied somebody and then another agency on the same set of facts has gone the opposite direction which is a little head spinning. So, you know, again, you go, well, geez, you know, if these are uniform guidelines that are supposed to be consistently applied, how does that happen? Well, unfortunately it does. And, and this is just the differing interpretations. Those are the exception, not the norm. Oftentimes, if an IC agency denies your clearance or revokes your clearance, then it will have fallout on any collateral clearances that you hold elsewhere. So it is a real 
consideration to think about before you go down that road. Yeah, it's just the scope of the investigation. I mean, within the intelligence community, they do run their own investigations for a reason. And I think we just see a lot more depth into what they require and what they look at. And they're going to be gathering information that you might not get on the typical DOD TS clearance process. You know, they have their own system of record that doesn't necessarily exchange information, you know, easily within the DOD system and their own processes for conducting the investigations. Not all clearances are created equally, as it were. So make sure you investigate, you know, what the hiring processes are for the agency you're applying for, especially if it's a three-letter agency, I think is is good advice. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I will just also point out that, you know, substantively, there are areas that are asked about in the background investigation process in the IC that are just completely different from areas that are asked about in any other clearance. And one of the biggest examples is sexual behavior. There is a questionnaire that applicants are required to fill out at certain agencies that asks very probing questions about sexual history. And that has caught some people really off guard. And so, as you said, it it pays to be careful and and exercise some some caution here. And uh, when in doubt, seek out some some good advice, some competent advice uh, before you head down that road. Yeah, and just know like it is an intensive. I mean, it isn't asking and read the SF-86 in depth and know the adjudicative guidelines are because they, you know, like I say, it's just a more intense process on what already exists there in layers. Because, you know, people always say that. Well, I mean, how would how would sexual behavior come up in the clearance process? Like, Well, read the SF-86. I mean, it's in there. It's not I don't think it's, you know, something that most people need to be concerned about, but it is still in there for a reason. And I still see clearance very rarely and certainly a small aspect. But even within the Doha cases, sexual behavior can result in clearance denial and revocation. It definitely comes up. I mean, there's no question about that. It comes up within non-IC cases. Usually where it comes up is like somebody's been arrested for some sort of sexual related offense or, you know, in rare cases, a reference has, you know, divulged something in the IC they actually, in some cases, specifically ask about certain conduct that isn't asked about on the SF-86. And even things like, you know, have you ever seen anything on the internet that makes you feel uncomfortable? And that's a real rabbit hole for some people. So you got to be careful <laughs> with, with how you answer some of these questions. And, and depending on what's actually in your background, you know, you got to be cognizant of, geez, uh, is there something here that maybe uh, has been previously undiscovered that could potentially expose me to some sort of, you know, repercussions outside the security clearance process. Yeah, well, and that's why we release the top cause of clearance denial and revocation on the site. And those are always DOD specific because they we pull them from Doha. When I talk to folks at ODNI, they always say, well, for us, personal conduct is far and above number one. Well, that's because all those personal conduct issues are going to come up in the polygraph. I don't want to scare people away from applying. I There are, you know, plenty of people who make it through this process unscathed and it's a worthy, you know, uh, endeavor to pursue. If you have, you know, an interest in working in the intelligence community and you're patriotic minded, like anything, you just need to kind of look at the full picture. And uh, for some folks, it is, it is really not a smart thing to do. And for others, it just requires a little bit of legwork up front to mitigate things or, or a little bit of uh, effort to sort of address concerns proactively. So, when in doubt, as I said before, be, be careful, be cautious, but do know that 
Not every agency applies the adjudicative guidelines the same. It is an intense process applying for the intelligence community. So no one should be surprised that the clearance process is equally intensive. A little bit of preparation leading into that can certainly make your case more favorable. And doing some work up front, like waiting a year before applying and taking time to mitigate issues, to be prepared, can potentially improve your ability to actually get through the process more quickly versus just applying and hoping and then sitting there. I don't know. The three-letter agencies, they're tough. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.